Welcome to Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. I'm your host, Chad Brasecca. And in this episode, I'm joined by Brian Barry, president at F. Curtis Barry & Company. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you. So our targeted audience is really fulfillment professionals who are looking to receive some practical advice from our guests that they can really go back and implement immediately. So really looking to have some back and forth dialogue today with you. But uh, before we we dig into it, do you mind just taking a moment for our audience to introduce yourself and a little bit about uh, your company? Sure, absolutely. So certainly uh, appreciate the opportunity, but uh, as a whole, F. Curtis Bearing Company is a consultancy that specializes in supply chain and distribution strategies. Our Typical clients are retailers, so whether that be independent stores or retail chains, but also e-commerce companies. Uh, that has been the, the majority of our focus for quite a while, but um, other segments include wholesale distribution and manufacturers, all with really this, this focus on distribution, whether it be storing raw materials or picking, packing, shipping finished goods to individual consumers. And that, that ranges and helping people to understand where should they have distribution centers and how many and how should they look through detailed layout and design, but also supporting people that are looking to outsource fulfillment or value-added services, helping to find the right partner there. We've been around since the mid-80s and you know have just seen quite a, a dramatic change over you know, all those years compared to how retail was to how internet and e-commerce sales have driven things today. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, over the years, there's been, I would imagine, hundreds of fulfillment operations you've walked into and plenty of, of upside and opportunities in our industry. But there's probably a lot of mistakes these operations make. And uh, most of our listeners are like, want to know what those are to prevent them. What are some of the big ones that you see just fulfillment companies make regularly? So there's a few that, that come to mind, but I think one of the biggest is just taking so long to make a decision or to take action, right? And what I mean by that is you've got to make critical investments in distribution and your supply chain. And, you know, a lot of times people are, are waiting too long to make those investments or, or make those changes. And it gets them behind the eight ball because a lot of times when you're talking about even some simple automation, if you will, to try to minimize the labor cost and improve efficiency, you could easily be looking in today's market six to eight months minimum lead time just on equipment, right? So as people wait longer and longer, those lead times have grown, but you're also paying more for that same labor. So it's a lot of times if people are just waiting too long to make some of these critical decisions. I think the other part about waiting too long is people getting to the end of a lease term or they get towards the end of a contract with a 3PL and they think, okay, well, we've, we've got four to six months to make our next step, to make our next decision. And the reality of it is, is it takes a significant amount of time to vet and make these types of decisions. And so waiting too long can really put the operations in a bind. 
If you're out there looking for a, a new lease for a new facility, the market is extremely tight. It's very, very difficult. And so people are having to spend more and more time to try and find the right facility. So I think overall, when you look at it, it one of the major mistakes is just waiting too long to try to make a decision on next steps. I don't think people appreciate that point probably enough that they, you know, there's unintended consequences when you may want to switch a provider, for an example, but because they're, you know, paralyzed with the decision making, the window shrinks really quickly and maybe the provider themselves isn't available or the RFP process takes on a longer length or or some real estate just isn't available and they, they feel trapped and it ends up getting renewed uh, when they never really wanted that to begin with. Agreed. But uh, I'm sure you experience that regularly. Yeah. And I think one of the other issues that we run into all the time is just, especially in that 3PL side of things, is just sometimes a business isn't quite as attractive to 3PLs as people believe it might be, right? And so that might mean that you've got to go through more vendors to find those that are are really interested. And what comes to, to mind, especially with that, is there might be people that aren't turning inventory well, maybe not a healthy inventory situation. And the supply chain issues have created a lot of issues to where I might be buying a 12-month supply or 18-month supply because I'm hedging what's happening overseas. But they have to take into account the significant growth that 3PLs have gone through, and they're becoming more and more picky and choosy on what they want to bring in. And so these accounts need to be able to generate a certain amount of revenue to be attractive to 3PLs. It's a much different market than what it was 2019, 2018, 2017. And so if you think that you're going to go into it and the first three people that you're going to approach are going to be those businesses that are going to bid, that could pose an issue if there are product characteristics that don't fit the profiles of those vendors you're looking for, or if inventory metrics aren't good. And that will just prolong the, the amount of time it takes to find the best vendors to suit your business. It's just much different than it was years ago. Yeah, we just we, we love our companies that we work for, and we just assume that everybody would want to be doing business with us, <laughs> that would love us. That's right. But even carriers today... Some regional carriers may find you attractive or not attractive, or, or large carriers may not find your product ca- uh, characteristics in their sweet spot. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that for sure is a big mistake. So you'd mentioned the, the automation aspect. How do you think about automation? There's a lot of you know, opinions on it. Some are facts, but what's the fine line between preserving capital? Sure making investments into automation, what types of automations do you typically find to be safe to make? What are you hearing from customers on, you know, what do they care about? They are, do they care about the payback or the ROI? Are they caring more about throughput? I'm really interested in just your view on yeah, automation in general. So I want to tie the previous question of mistakes with automation. And one mistake that we see at times is people do too much YouTube shopping. 
we are all for people gaining exposure to different technologies, but sometimes people become enamored with what they see on YouTube and maybe they've been exposed to something from, say, Modex or Promat or what have you, and they're all in without knowing what the cost is, right, or what the benefit does it fit. I mean, it's a material handling system, and every material handling system has its time or place, right? So one of the mistakes can be going too far down the road of what you think you want versus what's really a good option. So we tend to think about things in a, in a few different ways. Uh, we're, I would say, the kind of guys that are extremely practical with things. We don't enjoy living in the theoretical world because that often leads to bad things in operations, right? So we are tried and true. We, we love the technologies that, it, that have been proven. And that really helps people to be realistic about the ROI, right? So in terms of ROI, what are people thinking? There's still a significant amount of the industry that's typically in that two to three year payback. They are not really going to look too far outside of that. However, we have a few clients that are in the upper Midwest. They're in small cities. They have no intentions of moving their operations. And they understand that the cost and competition for labor is never going to get any better. And so they look at it to say, okay, we can, we should, and we will consider a much longer time horizon for an ROI because we know that this environment is not going to get any better. I'm not in a, a city of three or four million people. I'm in a town of 50,000, 60,000 people. And so their time horizons tend to shift to, say, outwards of 60 months overall. And the important thing about the ROI is, People think of it as, you know, okay, it's a three-year ROI, but the reality of it is, is that in year four, there's a big payback that still comes in. In year five and year six, right, these, these systems don't stop paying for themselves, but yet the mentality is more wrapped around how long is it going to take me as opposed to what might be possible over, say, seven or 10 years, in which case the savings can far exceed what the initial investment is. But what, what we see as a whole right now is a drive to really do two things. One is to minimize that peak season hiring. You know, it's, it's, it's become rather difficult. I have a client in Knoxville, Tennessee, that I think is maybe is as bad as it gets, and that is that they with having to use temp labor, temp agencies in, in today's markets, they're having to bring in 20 people to find out one that might last a week. So for them, they have to hire 20 people at peak season. Doing the math, I've got to turn hundreds of people, but by the time I've hit what I need, season's done. So it's this constant revolving door that they're trying to hedge, right? And there's high HR costs in there, you know, and there's excessive training. So people are looking to automate various pieces that, that help to just kind of bring that down a little bit. And the other piece is certainly the high cost of labor as well. Significant cost. If you look at some of the latest data that's out there, in this industry, the average right now is around 1692, I think was the latest figure that I, I had seen. But when you fully burden that, you're up in the upper $20 per hour, $28, $29 per hour, depending on your benefits and how you pay for training and so forth. So high cost, without a doubt. 
I would say the third big piece that plays into automation is facilities, high cost to move. Nobody wants to really do it. Today's leases, you know, you're seeing five-year lease terms with two and three-year options after that. So we're not seeing three-year lease terms like in previous years. And so people want to maximize what they're doing. And, and so automation allows them to, at times, better utilize a facility and at the same time, potentially keep them from having to move to a modified second shift or a full second shift, right? Can I do more volume in a single shift remain in the building? So your question about the types of technologies, goods to person technologies are, I think, really some of the strongest pieces that are out there, whether it's, you know, using robotics or cobots to assist with picking and put away processes or shuttle systems, whether it be like an auto store or an OPEX perfect pick, significant upsides to throughput and accuracy. They're really helping organizations uh, tremendously. So there's a a few different options there. That's a good segue, actually. Yeah, low-level, faster payback period, but tangible results. What I kind of like about the cobots is they also, if you don't have a strong WMS system or just reporting systems, they provide data for you to, to, to do stuff with, whether it's associate picking rates or be able to dynamically um, help slot or put away. But that, that leads me into another area I wanted to, to, to touch on with you is just reporting and data in general, I guess, data integrity. So automation doesn't occur without good data. I, I feel like the mistakes that you referenced at the top of the call, I think probably oftentimes occur without good data. How do you use data with the customers that you're serving or advising, what types of data is imperative to offer during an RFP or and even beyond? What do you do with the data typically that that you're requesting? Yeah, so there's there's a few key pieces that are important. They're critical to a wide variety of things, whether it be somebody that has their own distribution center that is contemplating automation or even just looking to make improvements and processes all the way through to looking at at 3PLs, right? So a good order file is always critical. And that, that should just drive at the transactional information that occurs. And we take that data quite a bit. And we start looking at peak days, peak hours, right? We're wanting to know how many picks are being made, how many line items, how many locations are we having to go to to satisfy peak hour type information. And, and that data really kind of pushes outward and, and tells us, are there areas of opportunity to automate? It also helps us to eliminate options. Again, not not all automation is built the same. Not everything services the same. But that really helps us to understand quite a bit from an automation and technology perspective. That data is also used to help us slot distribution centers, right? Because I can take that same data and I can understand on a peak day, how many times am I going back to a specific bin, and how frequently, right? Am I creating congestion points in a warehouse because so many picks are within a small segment of SKUs and how that's slotted? You know, sometimes people make these errors of the fastest product goes in bin one, the second one goes in bin two, and now you push all the pickers through the same congested footprint. And you 
think that you're doing it the right way, but you, you create issues, right? So data to us is ultra critical, a really good, simple order file of just, you know, that transactional data. And I think the second being really um, would deem, say, an item master, right? So the SKU units of measure, so how many units per case and cases per pallets, but also cubic dimension and weight, because then to tie it back into slotting, I know what I need from a velocity perspective, but I can use that data to say, I want to create the right size bin based on the number of days of supply I want. How big should that bin be? And I can better utilize material handling systems. And I can take that data to a 3PL and they can understand how much space does this program take up in a distribution center? Do I have enough open storage to satisfy this potential client? And it leads to some of the questions such as, from a 3PL perspective, is this program potentially going to take up a significant amount of space and maybe be out of balance with the transactional volume? So now I've become a warehouse and not a distribution center. So data to us just drives everything. It, it helps eliminate the emotional side of it and just goes right at the factual side of businesses. So to us, data, data is key, and, and we push this notion of you need to know your numbers. You need to know your business inside and out. You need to know what your picking rate is so that when you're asked how many more people do you need, it's not an emotional answer of I need a lot more. A lot's not a number, right? If you're telling me you're going to grow sales by 10%, I can look at that and say, I need five FTEs to support the picking. So data, we really mentor clients to just get better on the data side, get stronger, get really good information. How do you manage the data? Do you dump it into a program that's proprietary? Is it just good old-fashioned data mining in Excel? Yeah. Typically, what are you using to sift through it? There's a few different pieces. One is, you know, on the productivity side and so forth. We've benchmarked hundreds of businesses and we have a lot of different internal reporting that we look at in there. And then in terms of thinking about slotting, but also utilization of material handling and proper configurations of automation systems, there's a significant amount that we've developed internally and and some proprietary databases and so forth. But a lot of what we're trying to do is to extend that knowledge to our clients and help them think through what type of reporting should be developed in their WMS. Uh, There's a significant number of people that don't have their own WMS solutions. And so they, they have trouble because they, you know, they might have some legacy ERP systems that are not very rich in data. And so you try to work with their IT groups to see what could be done? Do they have skill sets that say, okay, look, we can build an external database and put a reporting layer on top of that. But it certainly is one of the hardest aspects with clients. Unfortunately, there's a, a fair number of times we're asked to design a facility and yet there's no cubic dimension tied to items. And so you then kind of have to take a step back and find other avenues to help design those types of facilities and so forth. But it can be a challenge for a fair number of people. For companies or shippers or you know, fulfillment organizations that are mature and maybe have the robust WMS or maybe they're already on their journey to to technology stacks and automation and they have some of that data coming out 
What do you tell customers that are still operating in a manual environment? How do you get down to the associate level tracking when you don't have automation? Is there a solution for that other than manually filling out some employee data card and tracking their their hours? And is there something that can be done? That's been a single hardest piece is, is working with somebody to better understand their throughput and productivity rates, right? Because we, people that have followed us for a while hear us talk about all the time, you, you can't improve something that you don't measure, right? So how do I know that I'm better than a year ago if I was never tracking throughput or picking accuracy or, or anything else, right? And so that becomes the single biggest challenge of, of working with people to say, okay, how do I capture something where I have no facility, I have no system to be able to do that today. And it does come back to, again, I think working with IT to say, okay, can we get simple things? Can we get a barcode on a batch header sheet if you're paper picking, for instance? And can we make a scan and essentially associate the orders, lines, and units in an external database with that batch, right? And so can I scan a batch header sheet and scan an employee ID and essentially do a few things, record that batch, record who did it, but also capture the scan time so that I essentially have the beginnings of a pick batch from a picking perspective. And then when I'm done and I come grab my next manual pick batch and I make my next scan, I essentially close the first batch and open the next. And so we try to work through internally with people in that way to eliminate the manual recordings, you know, where then somebody is coming in and reeking a spreadsheet to try and accumulate what happens. It's very difficult in those environments. And also it's never a good idea to have employees track their own productivity because when they know what you're doing, there will be those individuals that all of a sudden look very, very strong, yet the amount of work that was performed is less than, than expected. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't The self-policing is, is never great. Not the answer. No, no. So in, in, in the example that you just described, so a lot of, you know, e-tailers in particular that are growing and trying to scale their business that are just a ways away from technology or they're not ready to make the investment yet. So in that manual environment, you think having some type of a, of a batch header with a barcode that they're scanning at the user ID, start end time, completion time with those unit of measures. And where does that data then go when they scan the batch sheet uh, or does somebody still key that in? Yeah, so so generally what we're seeing are clients developing an external database to manage that information, right? Manage the work that was performed, who did it, and those start and stop times. And then generally they're building reporting on top of that, right? And it becomes the greatest challenge, which is now there's silos of information because I have order-related information that honestly might be trying to come out of Shopify, might be coming out of a legacy ERP system, or maybe even something that's internally developed. And so you end up with these silos of data that further create challenges. And I think that as you look at this, there's an evolution that generally needs to occur, right? So we've talked about how to capture different metrics that are important. 
However, I think for people that are in this journey of evolving and becoming more complex, some of the first pieces that that we would really say are, are be really solid on the fundamentals of fulfillment. If there are significant hurdles to capturing the data, the throughput and productivity, sometimes you just have to distill it to a much higher level. You, You need to just say, okay, look, for this week, total payroll dollars were X, total orders, lines, and units processed were Y, and get it to the fulfillment team process this as a whole, and the cost per order as a whole was this, the cost per unit picked was this on a weekly basis, and put those efforts and focus into the fundamentals, right, which are maximizing the utilization of bin locations in the facility as a whole, slotting properly, beginning to think about vendor compliance programs to help gain efficiencies on the inbound side. And that as you become more complex, if you at least start with these high-level pictures of for the week, the team did X, the throughput was Y, and track that over time, that will help you then move into the next phase of getting more sophisticated with systems. And that doesn't always mean getting into half a million dollar systems. There's a significant number of WMSs out there that are a few hundred dollars a month per user, which will take a lot of businesses much, much farther than where they're at today. And I think Part of the problem is is that you know the industry still thinks of, of WMSs as a $4 million initial investment for businesses. And the reality is the cost of technology has come down tremendously. And so all these businesses that are on Shopify, and that is their ERP, if you will, there's a lot of vendors out there that have direct integrations into Shopify to fulfill orders so much easier and to get you into this mode of, of thinking about productivity and KPIs and metrics. You know, you'd mentioned slotting multiple times in those examples of back and forth. And I think aside from receiving is maybe the most important aspect to do it right the first time. Slotting kind of comes right after that. And you made the point of a lot of us think, well, you want to put like items with like items because it takes maybe more efficiently, but that's not always the case. It has downsides of order accuracy errors when two items are too closely akin to one another, or oftentimes just the enormous amount of congestion that improper slotting can have or time distance and travel delays in a building. Any good stories of, of slotting throughout your career that you, uh, you have for the audience? Absolutely. There's a a few horror stories, but more importantly, there are a lot of success factors, right? So, so I think as we talk about slotting, there's a few, a few key things that we think about, right? And, and so slotting is about balancing a a few different aspects. Um, We're ultimately what we're trying to do is to minimize the amount of walking that has to occur to either handle product replenishments or picking, right? And, Every step is just added cost to the process. So we're trying to balance the size of that pick footprint or pick path through the facility with the frequency of replenishments, right? And then we're also trying to think about the amount of inventory that should be in the bin. So a lot of times what we have are our clients that are really trying to maintain three to five days of supply in a pick location, 
to the other end, which is our clients that say, I don't want to replenish a pick location more than once every two weeks or maybe even once a month. So as we think about this, right, the, the less days of supply that are in the pick location, I have a very compressed pick footprint and I should be ultra efficient because I can pick super fast. But the downside is, as well, I've decreased the walking, I can increase the congestion, but I'm also increasing the amount of labor associated with replenishments. I have to fill that bin more often. Chances are you're going to end up with a warehouse back order during the day in which the picker gets to a location that's out of stock and now can't complete that pick till a replant is done. On the other hand, if I push two, three months of inventory in every bin location, I end up with a much, much bigger pick footprint. And so while I've virtually eliminated the frequency of replenishments, I now have an excessive pick path, an excessive amount of walking. So it's really trying to find that balance point of each of those to find the ideal situation. I, I think a, a really good example is we had a client that um, that their pick footprint was about 40,000 square feet. There were thousands of SKUs but they had never really thought about the days of supply, standardizing the days of supply in a pick location. So slots were completely random. You could walk down an aisle and you, you could see 40, 50 different size bin locations, right? So we just took a disciplined approach to analyzing the data, determining velocity, uh, thinking about the days of supply in the pick location, and, and kind of coming up with a really about five standard bin sizes. So it says, okay, every SKU is going to fit, you know, in this one, this one, this one, this one, or this one. That helped to then create profiles in the aisles. And overall, what we were able to do was to really collapse it down by about 50% by just right-sizing the locations, by ensuring that we are thinking about maximizing that space, right? Then you layer in some other pieces, right? The golden zone. The golden zone says my fastest items should be picked at, at waist high or, or right in front of us. I'm not reaching or bending on a regular basis to get those fast-moving SKUs. Adhering to some of these just fundamentals, again, allowed this company to gain upwards of 40-plus percent efficiency in the pick, right? So much better throughput. It actually pushed off their, their need to go to a modified second shift to handle picking. It was just done in, in the right-size footprint. And so things like that can be – slotting can be – one of the biggest increases in picking throughput and efficiency that any company can do. Once you get that slotting nailed down, it needs to just be a repetitive process that you're looking at and evaluating for some businesses once a quarter, for others twice a year, or for some once a year is adequate. But it, it can't be a set it and forget it type mentality. And for everybody listening, none of which can be accomplished without data to, to give you the uh, insights to all that. One more quick question, Brian, before you have to go is, what would you say to operators today that they're under an enormous amount of pressure, whether it's high volume environments or current recession looming, but they continue to have to deliver an increased throughput without adding cost? What, what do you tell that listener today? you know, this is somewhere to start. I go back to my previous point, execute on the fundamentals. 
we've all been there to, you know, to really achieve what we need. We know that there's capital expenditures, but, you know, management and ownership, they want to know that every dollar they've invested in the business has been maximized and really kind of hesitant to maybe put forward additional capital expenditures given where we are in the economy and, and as you said, what might be in the next 12 or 18 months. And so I think it comes back to just executing on the fundamentals, right? Ensuring that the facility that you're utilizing every square foot, you're maximizing that building. Because again, the last thing anybody wants to do is to just go through the cost and disruption of business to move facilities to the degree that we can, that we are measuring employee productivity and throughput. And and we're using that to drive decision-making. We're finding areas that that we can tweak and play with to get a little bit more as that continual process improvement mindset that that we preach with people. I think you've got to ensure that you have the most efficient layout and design and that you're utilizing the systems that you have in place to their fullest. In lieu of additional capital coming into the operations, it's executing as flawlessly as possible on the fundamentals and you know, slotting being a part of that as well, right? Those are the things that if you're doing everything to the best that you can improve that out to ownership and management, it's going to put you in the best position possible and not just be constantly asking for dollars, right? But just prove out that you've, you've done everything that you can to execute on, on what their goals are. This episode is sponsored by Amware Fulfillment. Amware is a third-party fulfillment company that provides pick, pack, and ship services to established direct-to-consumer brands. With fulfillment centers in every region of the U.S., Amware supports one- to two-day ground delivery to 95% of the country. In short, Amware takes care of everything after the click. Learn more at amwarefulfillment.com. For as uh, complicated as supply chains are, sometimes it's literally just that simple, a focus on the fulfillment fundamentals. So that's that's pretty great advice to, to close out the segment for our listeners today. So Brian, look, I appreciate the uh, the time. I know it's tough to get you. I appreciate it. Where can our listeners go to get in touch with you or to learn just more about your company? Sure, sure. The easiest place is certainly our website, and that is fcbco.com. In fact, what we'll do is put together a whole bunch of resources that we've talked about in this podcast. So if you go to fcbco.com forward slash podcast, you'll have links that are directly tied to our conversations. We have, uh, I think today we probably written over 600 articles. So we're, we're very much about trying to help people through their journey in the operations and distribution environments. And so you'll, you'll find every single one of those articles on our site, all just designed to try to take our knowledge and help you in everything that you're trying to achieve as a company. Fantastic. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. We'll get the links for our uh, listeners over to the site as well. So Again, thank you, Brian. And this concludes our episode of Unboxing Fulfillment, the modern B2C fulfillment podcast. Stay safe, everyone. 